Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 30 of the Union Podcast. My name is Brian Pugh, and I am the co-founder of the Union Movement. If this is your first time joining us here on the podcast, welcome. Uh, the Union Podcast is all about talking about God's design uh, for sexuality, relationships, identity, and how we can experience uh, hope and restoration and uh, destiny through Jesus. So thank you so much for joining us. If you are a return listener, it is so great to join uh, you here again. And we would just ask you of you if you would uh, subscribe and like and comment and even share this podcast with others. It just helps us to get the message out and helps us to be seen by more and more people. Like I said, this is episode 30 and today we are sitting down with a friend of mine, Adam Narciso, um, and we're talking about discipleship and sexuality. Adam and his wife, Jenny, and their family, they hail from Franklin, Tennessee, and Adam has had a um, long period of time in ministry ministry, dealing with discipleship and has a great heart for evangelism, but it's also some amazing insight on how um, sexuality is meant to be integrated in our discipleship process within the church. So if you are a church leader, I know you're going to benefit from this today, but let's jump right into it and let's sit down with Adam Narciso. You're listening to The Union Podcast. The Union is a movement dedicated to discovering God's design for sexuality restoration and the power of our destiny through Jesus. Please enjoy today's podcast. All right, Adam Narciso, thank you so much, dude, for being on the podcast today. You bet, Brian. Joy to be here, man. Yeah, thanks so much, dude. I am... Um, I just appreciate your heart for discipleship. I appreciate your heart for evangelism and obviously um, your voice uh, to the church on in the prophetic realm as well. And, and I just appreciate your heart and um, and I'm, I'm excited. I think people are really going to benefit from this conversation today and, and the insight and the, um, and the, uh, yeah, just the, the perspective that you bring. So um, we're going to jump into that today, but one of the things we do around here, just an off the cuff kind of random questions. So um, considering that you've been to um, some wild nations, been all over the world and, and brought the gospel and preached and ministered, what's the craziest food you've ever eaten? Uh, it's so good. I get asked this question a lot by friends and family because I've had the opportunity to, you know, be in minister in something like 26 nations. Wow. And I would say one of the craziest things I've eaten that many think is the craziest um, has been tarantula. Tarantula. Uh, tarantula, the, the, the big spider. So in Cambodia, in Siem Reap, Cambodia, it's actually a street food. So there are, um, you know, young ladies who go around with big buckets and, um, what they, what the buckets are just piled high of tarantula. You can get a couple for 50 cents or a couple for a buck, something like that, but they defang them. They throw them in the fire to kind of singe the hair off. And then they throw them, um, throw them in the frying oil. And, um, you know, you just eat them like street food. And people ask, what was it like? I say, if you ever had like a bratwurst sausage and it's been charred, a little bit too much. The skin's been charred. If you imagine the taste of that deep char, but then it's like layered texture like that, that's what it tasted like. And honestly, it was more of a mental thing 
that was one of the few things I put in my mouth and it, I really struggled to get it down. Oh, dude, no doubt, man. No doubt. That's not exactly Chick-fil-A, bro. It's not Chick-fil-A, bro. Here I am. I live in the Nashville area in Tennessee. We've got Chick-fil-A's literally several within a couple miles of our home. So it's Everywhere. not Chick-fil-A. No, not for real, man. <laughs> so yeah, just as you said, you and your wife, Jenny, and your family, you guys live in Franklin, Tennessee, just just south, I, guess, I think southwest of Nashville, right? That's right. We're like 14 miles down the road from downtown Nashville. There was a bomb that went off, you know, Christmas morning, literally 14 miles from our home and um, really incredible, horrific event. Praise God. No one died except the bomber. But yeah, we're right in the greater Nashville area. We love what God's doing in middle Tennessee and are grateful to be a part of it. Totally. Now you, you lived in the Tacoma region, the Pacific Northwest, Pacific Northwest for majority of your life. What was that story like, you know, that whole transition coming out of Tacoma and now moving across the States to, to Tennessee? Well, I had a few transitions because I actually was born and raised in central California. And then I was not, about 19 years old, I moved to Tacoma, Washington. When you grow up in California, you, there's an arrogance about you. You never think you're going to leave the state, you know? And I went to a state called Washington State, like this, the state of flannels and Nirvana and Subarus. Never, uh, never really thought I'd leave the state of California, but it wasn't actually long um, before I met and connected with a young woman who would become my future wife, Jenny. And so we lived together. I've been there in Tacoma about 15 years. My wife did her college years there too. So she spent about 20 years in, in Tacoma. We moved to Franklin three years ago, really following the word of the Lord about a new season of ministry in our life. And um, the transition to your question has been crazy. It's been awesome, but it's also been somewhat strange because I went from the least church state in the union to kind of a, a mega church capital state of Tennessee, yet still a place that desperately needs Jesus, desperately needs the message of the kingdom, the message of repentance and surrender to Jesus. Um, But this, you know, Nashville is such a cool place. It's a broadcasting city. Radio started here. Like this is a hub for Christian communications around the world. And so we find ourselves in a unique space, able to do ministry that we love raising our kids in a state that we think is just beautiful in a town that's like family oriented. We're just honestly super privileged to be here. So. Yeah, that's so exciting, man. Now, um, while you were in Tacoma, you and your wife, you guys led a discipleship school. Tell us about, um, tell us about that season of your life. Oh, so good. Yeah. So for about 10 years, nine, nine, 10 years, we led a ministry called Catalyst Ministries. Um, and it was really a, tra- it's a training and, and, and out and global outreach mission for the next generation. We ran discipleship schools in the summer for college students, a nine month Bible and ministry intensive for people who wanted to go further throughout the year. And we conducted these mobile seminars that we took on the road to serve churches. And then we mobilized these outreach teams that we sent in the nations wow. for short-term missions, mobilized almost 50 uh, overseas outreach teams, you know? That's amazing. And so we just had this rhythm of life of, of discipleship, evangelism. The lines were blurred. You didn't know where discipleship ended where evangelism began, we were a community on mission. Come on. And in the course of time, as young people from all around the nation and, and even other nations were dr- drawn to us in that season, 
we followed the Lord into acquiring an old 10,000 square foot mansion in the heart of our city in wow. historic district. And we just filled it with young people, you know? So we lived in this house, our family, staff, a couple staff, and then just, uh, you know, 30 young people. Wow. And so just going hard after God meals together, you know, fighting about chores and yeah. cleanliness and <laughs> all the family issues. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just really doing the life, uh, Christian community, you know, learning the ways of God together. And that was a really, really profound season of our lives. Didn't really want it to end. And, um, and yet just, following, you know, being blown by the wind of God, here we are, you know, in a totally uh, different season. In some ways we covet the, you know, we're jealous for those days again, to be around a critical mass of young people all the time, learning together. In other ways, we're grateful for the space that we have. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of margin. Yeah, I get it. A little bit of margin. Like I had a, we, we lead a, a, give direction to a ministry in the area. And so I had a living room full of young people here just yesterday, college age and high school young people living room full. It was so awesome. And we're going after God and we're reaching campuses for Christ. But then at the end of the meeting, they all left. And yeah. it was just me, my couch, man, <laughs> some football yeah, and, and some dinner and my kids. And I'm like, you know, I like having a little space. This isn't so bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, let me ask you real quick, just because you brought up football and then we're, we'll jump into this a little bit deeper. How has it been? Are you now a Titan Titans fan or are you still a Seahawks fan? You know, I, I appreciate the Titans. I'm definitely still, I'm still a Seahawks fan, you know, but let's be real. Seahawks, they, they, there's some repentance that's needed in order for them to see the restored fullness that what of what's what was. And yes. so, yeah, we're believing God for revival among the Seahawks. Their seasons ended. The time yeah. seasons ended too. So I'm like, man, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, I, you know, I just, I so appreciate, you know, just like I said, your heart for discipleship and, and, you know, I think it takes a, a special type of people and, and couple to be willing to, to open up, to like to purchase, first of all, a 10,000 square foot <laughs> home and to say, Hey, anybody who's willing and hungry for the Lord and wants to go deeper in their walk with Christ, let's, let's come and let's do this. Um, so I, I just want to honor that. And I say how much oh, I yeah. appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I, I want to kind of preface this first question as we jump in here, because obviously this year, 2020 has been, or as we've now stepped into 2021, thank you very much. Um, but 2020 was just wild and in a lot of ways was really good in a lot of ways, as much as the, there's a lot of craziness that still uh, needs to be unpacked and still needs to be um, dealt with. And I, I know we're all uh, trusting the Lord for that to happen. Um but I think it brought out some pretty crazy things. And obviously we've seen some major Christian leaders um, be exposed with a sense of a double life in um, when it came to this area of sexuality, um, unfaithfulness in their marriage, you know, um, coercion, all this crazy stuff that's gone on. Um, and, and so I, I want to kind of preface this a little bit because I feel like discipleship has been compartmentalized 
to spiritual gifting and to your charisma. And it doesn't necessarily touch these other areas um, of your life. And so I'd love to just kind of hear your heart and kind of hear your perspective on how we ended up here as a church where sexuality seems to be like this, this thing that it doesn't really matter as long as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm praying, I'm doing the praying and fasting, you know, I'm doing the worship nights, the 24 hour burns, you know, all this crazy stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm even have a prophetic gifting and and I'm activating that I'm reaching people for Christ. Yet this area of sexuality is completely untouched by that same power that they're walking in in other areas. So how do you see us as the, the larger church, how do you see that we ended up here? Oh, well, this is such a big question, obviously a big topic. And, you know, the reports of the exposure this year, those are heart wrenching moments. Those they are, are moments for leaders like us. We go to God, they ruin a day or two because we're just grieved. We're lamenting. We're, we're seeking a place of humility. God, like God help us as your people. And um, whether you like th- those leaders a hundred percent or not, whether you're critical of them, their brothers in Christ, their lives were ruined by these failures. And um, so that that's heart-wrenching. How did we get here? I think that um, there's at least a few systemic issues that I think we could point to that developed into the fruit that we, the negative fruit that we see. And, and if we can address those systemic issues, we're, we're going to the root. You know, I love, I love that, the idea of going to the root. You know, a lot of us, when we think about change, we think about cutting off the branches. If you know anything about a tree, pruning just brings it back. And um, one of the systemic things, though, if we go to the root of how did we get here, I think we've talked about this before, but there, there has no doubt there's been a cultural silence in the church on the topic of sex. Absolutely. And what happens in that culture of silence is when we're not speaking appropriately to the issues that the Bible is speaks about, you know, I, 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 we're all in these Bible reading plans. You're on the shred. I can imagine the shred. <laughs> I'm on the four chapters a day Bible reading plan, you know, yeah. uh, but I'm, I just finished Genesis a couple of days ago, already the book of Genesis, you, you're dealing with issues of rape, incest, molestation, marital unfaithfulness. You're dealing with uh, adultery. Oh my goodness. You're like, the Bible is not silent about issues around sex and sexual brokenness. So one of the things that happens in the culture, cultural silence around this topic in churches is that people inevitably live in darkness and in secrecy because when we preach to the issues of the human heart, it gives permission for people to come into honesty and truth and transparency, confession about their own brokenness, whether that's the things they've done or the things that have been done to them with respect to, to sex. And the culture of silence keeps people in darkness because there's an assumption in, in the heart of humans. Well, then if they're not speaking to this, maybe I'm the only one. The long-term totally. effects of this include Things like, very simply, people being unable to be honest about Mm. their sexual brokenness. Then when you come and you see major Christian leaders who at the end of the ministry or end their ministry with some exposure or after their death, you find out something's come into the light. Really, what happened? What do you have? Well, in part, 
It's the long-term effects of a systemic issue in the church, our cultural silence around the topic of sex. We don't simply don't speak appropriately enough to it and about it and around the issue to where people feel the sense of freedom to come into honesty in community about their unbrokenness. I think that's one of the systemic issues. Like there is tremendous healing in the gospel. You know, we're all familiar with the, the what first John one nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we love that vertical confession, but then there's this call to a horizontal confession, right? Confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. James five sixteen. I think the church in many ways, we have enough vertical confession to be cleansed, but not enough horizontal confession to be healed. And what we're experiencing are the long-term effects of uh, cultural silence around the issue of sex. Um, and it's our brokenness gets put on display through exposure, through negative exposure, rather than through repentant confession. Wow. Dude, that's so, that's so awesome. That's just on point. I, th- I totally agree with you. Um, now, like when you, when you were running your discipleship school, how did you guys, because I think, I think that exemplifies the difference between here. I'm going to kind of preface it again, because I go, yeah. I, I think, I think we've limited discipleship to a class. Oof. You can, you can take discipleship. You just take a class and you know, as hey, a couple hours on a Wednesday night and you get through this class and like, yeah, I've done a discipleship class. But what you yeah. guys did is you guys were in a family context. You guys were in close proximity. And I think that's the, that's the difference that has to shift in our North American, maybe Western perspective towards discipleship is it's not a class. Yeah. It's not a program. It is a lifestyle. It, as I, one of my friends who was preaching for our church just this last week said, discipleship is our Christian life. Yeah. It is our relationship with Jesus. And so how did you guys in that context of family, in that context, um, you know, like when you're running that discipleship school, how did you begin to approach this topic um, with those, you know, addressing those two systemic points that you, that you mentioned? Yeah. Well, one, one of the things is we just speak to it. And so whether that's in an evening young adult gathering or where we're opening the scripture, uh, we're just unafraid to go there or we, we build, you know, an, an at least an annual series around it. And then we're unafraid to go there when the scripture highlights it. So, and then secondly, in that discipleship setting um, in, in our home setting, most young adults with us, we're in a discipleship school, a program. And so there were classes that we designed around the, those elements as well. Those two things alone, like, you know, for a leader who's designing a discipleship journey in the way of teaching, one of the helpful things is just to assume sexual brokenness in your people. You don't assume wholeness, you assume brokenness. Why? Because according to the Christian worldview, we live in a fallen world due to sin. It's affected us all. And as a result, as leaders, we're wise then to assume sexual brokenness when we develop teaching content. If you start there, you will develop a teaching journey um, for your, 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 the people you're mentoring, you're leading, that will in appropriately include um, messages, teaching topics that will help them navigate their own sexuality, navigate their own brokenness, 
um, shame over the things they've done, that things that have been done to them, navigate their own, um, their own confusion. Why do I have lustful thoughts for, you know, someone who's not my spouse? Why do I have lustful thoughts for someone who, with whom I share the same sex, you know, like what's going on help me make sense of these things. You, we can speak to those things, um, from, from a biblical worldview on a consistent basis it gives someone permission in the kind of the, the air and water of your Christian community culture to say, all right, I can be honest about where I'm at and I won't be rejected. So where we start is exactly there. The gospel provides a context for our hearts to come into the, the corrective refining and healing waters of the Lord. That where does the gospel begin? It begins um, with, with the, the Lord's uh, reach for the human heart, you know, like we're, God had a plan that was disrupted by sin. God made a provision through Christ that we, that, uh, through his death, burial and resurrection, that we might be re- reconciled to God. How did, and how does he do that? He declares us not only forgiven, but righteous. Like we right. receive and inherit this new identity because of what Jesus has done. It's the, uh, the very righteousness of Jesus. That's where for the Christian, the, the, the discipleship journey begins with that declaration. You are righteous. And we, we forsake our own leadership. We forsake our own way. When we repent was what the Bible says, calls it, you know, we turn to Jesus and we receive and accept his righteousness. That's, that's where our journey begins. And so we spend ample time declaring those truths over young people. Why? Because the gospel creates a context through the sense of safety and security, love that comes through a new identity that now we feel safe. Like I'm not going to be rejected by Jesus. I'm not going to be rejected by the community he's grafted me into. He's declared me righteous. He's declared me love. He's declared me forgiven. He's declared me cleansed. Now, we can be honest about the brokenness on the inside because the brokenness on the inside um, won't get us into the deep waters of rejection or betrayal. What should we bring that to the light instead? Now we know, Oh, God's already declared me righteous. That means to repent of my sin or to turn away from my sin means freedom and joy. It means aligning to who I really am. And so strategically, we try and root and ground people in the truth of their new identity in Christ. And, and as a result, that makes repentance, turning from one's sin, turning from one's brokenness, it makes it beautiful. Because now repentance is not something you do when you're in trouble with God. Repentance is the invitation that God's given us to be restored to who we really are. Oh, man. Dude, that's so beautiful, man. It's so powerful. Um, I, I have to think too, like, you know, there's, you touched on it so perfectly, like the, the justifying work of God that like, he makes us righteous. Like, you know, I have heard, it's probably an old kind of cheesy Christian saying, but like, it's just as if we never sinned, you know what I mean? We're justified, we're made righteous. But then I think sometimes we confuse that with the, also the reality of the Holy spirit sanctifying us that we, we don't realize that as much as it's a positional reality that, you know, Hey, we are justified and we're holy before the Lord. We're also being made holy and we're also being healed. Now, what do you say to, to, to somebody who, who might 
who might be just kind of stuck in this thing. Well, man, I I'm, I'm positionally right with God, but how come my practice is not lining up? What would you, what would you say to that person? about about who they are in Christ. To, to be righteous, as you so wonderfully put it, there is a positional element to it. You know, I have a, a new status, a new identity with Christ. But that new status now, that heavenly status informs my practice. So there's a positional righteousness. There's a practical righteousness of working out, walking with Jesus, staying close to his heart of coming under his lordship daily, of resisting the desire of the flesh to lead our own way, to be independent, autonomous people. We're resisting those urges and we're learning to live from this new identity. And that's the journey that we have is the the Christian journey is, is in many respects, learning to live from this new status with God, learning to live from this new place, this new identity, by the way, you know, um, marriage, as, as the New Testament puts it, is this beautiful paralleling picture and metaphor. Marriage is supposed to be this picture of Jesus the Grim, who so lays down his life for his bride that he loves, that she becomes inclined to submit and yield to his leadership because she can trust him. That's the picture for the man and wife. You know, people think it's like about, it can be about domineering headship, you know, but no, Paul called headship. He says, it's about the one who sacrifices the most, the one who has human power, human strength, but lays it all down to advance and lift up someone else who is biologically speaking, culturally speaking, the weaker vessel. But in the course of time, because she sees the way he uses his power and authority is to benefit me, I can fully yield and submit to to him. So it is in our life with God. In our Christian journey, we we go, God has used his power and authority to declare me righteous, to call me his son, to to call me his beloved. So then we reason, therefore, I, I know. I can trust his leadership. I can trust his authority. I can yield to it. I can follow it because I'm convinced he has my best interests in mind. Yielding to the authority of the one who made me and designed me is, is true freedom, is, is true joy. And so for the person who, you know, unfortunately believes the lie, you know, like, well, I'm positionally righteous, but that doesn't really bear any effect on my practical life. I just say there's confusion there. There's a disconnect there. Truly embracing your identity informs your actions, informs your lifestyle, informs your behavior. Wow. That's so good. And I think that like what you just said, like puts self-denial that we're all called to as disciples of Jesus. Like he said, if you want to be my disciples, like deny yourself and take up your cross, that puts self-denial in a whole different perspective because it's not, it's not, denying yourself in order to get this sort of positional, like what we've talked about to get this positional acceptance, but it's actually a response to the reality of Jesus that you're experiencing. Because I think you and I, you know, in times of our life, like when we've had hard decisions to make where the Lord's saying, saying like, Hey, I want you to give this up or lay this down and, and follow me in a deeper way. 
because because we see him as he is, it's like such an easy decision. As much as it's challenging, as much as it's just like, why would I hold on to so much of this other stuff when when I know who he is and I know what he's about and I and I can trust him? Absolutely. And that's powerful. Like what we're butting up against though are 21st century Western and for our purposes, North American, like, you know, individualism, hyper individualism, which is totally foreign to the old Testament or the new Testament. We're trying to impose our individualism into scripture. And as a result, we hear deny yourself. And you're, we're like, Oh, that means just sacrifice and joylessness and drudgery you know, but where we to understand this, you know, let, let's, let's use this illustration. You know, I got married 17 years ago. Um, you know, man, when I, when I was dating my wife, man, I, and I would decided, I love this woman. I want to give my life to her. I was like, well, it's on. We get married, girl. We're not going to have a long engagement. Why? Because I want you now, you know, it's so, we entered into this, we had a four month engagement, you know, which is about as quick as you can do like a real wedding engagement, you know, and, uh, and still plan a plan a, a party, you know, and, um, I would, I will say this, I was never concerned in that moment about restricting myself to one woman, you know, moving forward. Why? Cause I knew, I knew I was so enamored with her. I knew that sharing myself with someone else would diminish joy in this intimacy, in this relationship, this covenant I have with her. And, and that faithfulness maximizes joy and, 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 um, the, the, our enjoyment of that covenant that so it is with the Lord, you know, like we understand his love. We understand his goodness in our lives the natural human response is the Lord. I want to give myself to you and giving myself to you means forsaking lesser pleasures, forsaking um, the lesser pleasures of this life that don't satisfy. I think this, what the psalmist says, you know, in your presence, Lord, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. I don't think of denying self as being like drudgery, like, Oh man, I got to buffet the flesh. I think of it as being, I am denying myself these lesser pleasures so that I can lay hold of the eternal higher pleasures that come from the presence of God. And that's been helpful to me, you know, in my own journey. So we all have, we all have resist, have to resist the flesh and resist temptation on some level. I think of, man, God, I want to preserve myself for the higher pleasures that come from my connection with you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think I can speak in, at least in my life that in times where, yeah, there's been that surrendering and there has been that real, like, okay, this, this I got to die to myself. And this, this is actually going to hurt a little bit. You know what I mean? Like where, where I've just seen, I've seen God come and fill those spaces um, that where I've made, made that margin, made that room through self-sacrifice, self-denial. I mean, um, he comes and he fills those spaces with things that I could not even have imagined. You know what I mean? And I think he's just that good. He is that good father that doesn't ask us to give something up that he himself is not going to step in and fill in a greater measure. And, there, and there's so much joy in it. You know, repentance needs to be redeemed. We need to buy it back like, as, as a practice of joy. I would say for me, like recently, my wife and I had an amazing reconciliation moment. 2020 has been hard. Really? And it's been, it's been hard. 
It's been hard on marriages. Dude, you know, like, real. man, I have had so many um, negative reports from people who I love who, whose marriages are just ending or on the fritz. And then in my own life, I look back on the year and I go, you know what? The, the stress and anxiety, the shakings of this year have taken a toll on our, my connection with my wife. I've lived, uh, you know, when unbelief has risen, I've lived angry or lived in silent anger, snappy, you know, and then I really realized, go, how did I go weeks like that? How did I go months with the, that silent tension? How did I go? How did we go that long without true sense of connection one to another? I had to repent. I had to come to my wife and repent. And I said, honey, I, I've been waiting for you to pursue me. And I'm realizing that that is just a recipe for disaster. That's just my pride. Like, what waiting on my wife to, to, to fix a sense of a lack of intimate connection when I know God's moving on my own heart about that, that need I had to come to her. This was recent. This was this last week and, and, and just repent and ask her forgiveness. I can honestly say though, that humility moment for me was very difficult. It was difficult to, because I had to, there was such a part of me on the inside that wanted to justify holding on to her, it being her issue or her problem or wanting to wait for her to take initiative. And I'm like, you know what? The foolishness of that reasoning is that's the reasoning that's running our relationship. And so I just had to get over it. And it was so awesome. Just like the Lord, like he said, like I repent, I come low and I'm like, Oh man, now there's clarity in my mind. Now there's, there's a sense of restored um, love together one to another. Now it's not perfect, but now there's a sense of, all right, we've got it on the open. Now we can continue to dialogue and pray through this. And repentance means restored connection. We, we need to recapture that in our lives with God. Come on, dude, that's so good. And, and I, dude, I just appreciate your, your humility and your willingness to share that because I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like 2020 has put, and just a sense of not knowing what the future looks like. And just like the Instagram, uh, like feed of bad news on a daily day, like basis is again and again, oh my gosh, this is happening. Now this is happening. And I think there's something in the human heart that wants to fix that. Right. And the danger is, is that we start to remove ourselves from connection and not pursue connection. And, and I, I can relate to man. I've, I've felt that, that you just, you see a problem and it just stirs in your head and your heart and you want to fix it. And, but you, what ends up happening is you draw away from people and you draw away from real connection. And even sometimes with the Lord, you start to get distant and then you're just like, how did I end up here? And you, you thankfully have those Holy Ghost inspired moments where you have like, what am I doing? I got to get back. I got to get back on track here. That's so good, dude. So good. Um, now, obviously, like you have a, a huge heart for evangelism and seeing the church um, operating in that, which is kind of a like evangelism is kind of like the lost. I don't want to say the lost art, but it's just, again, one of those missing key missing pieces in in the church because we don't want to be you know, those weird people, you know what I mean? That are just like in the, in your face. And we, you know, we've, we've kind of like, here's, here's what I would say. We've kind of limited evangelism as if like putting, you know, pretty intense sayings on a sign and going to standing in public is like, that's evangelism. Now, how do you see the church 
operating in evangelism in the context of like, cause we live in a, in a pretty sex saturated culture and this is where people are living. So how do we be effective in our evangelistic mission and calling and, and purpose as the church and be relevant to um, the, again, the sex saturation of culture? Oh, so good. I, I love this topic and there's a lot of ways we can parse it, but I serve, I'll say this, I, I serve um, in a partnership as in a volunteer capacity. I'm not a pastor at our local church in our move here in Tennessee. Um, I'm, you know, an itinerant minister. I'm, I'm full-time and devoted to our mission, but I get to serve at the point of my gift at our, in our local fellowship where I'm welcome to the apostolic team as a, as a voice. Um, <clears throat> but I'm, I, I'm not given pastoral duties. It's, it's, it's a, it's a great mold for me. You know, um, that said, as we began talking and I began bringing to the forefront cultural silence on the topic of sex. And, um, thankfully the, the you know, pastoral team, the leadership team, they, they heated that, that. And, uh, we began brainstorming and praying into what could, uh, a, a, a big series on the topic of sex, sexual brokenness in this context look like. And, uh, you know, we began praying into it and, and speaking to it. And as I knew it would, Pastor, who I think is one of the best teachers on the planet, Steve Fry, he, he does this series. And to no surprise, that series was the most streamed, downloaded, listened to, reported on uh, series of the year. And uh, I think, again, going back to breaking the cultural silence on the topic, it, preaching on the topic of sex is inherently evangelistic because it touches one of the most significant areas of brokenness the human heart experiences. When someone, when we preach to the topic of sex, we are touching the very heart of brokenness in, in most adults, most humans, most young adults, most youth in the room. And as a result, everyone has an opportunity to come under that illuminating work of the spirit that sometimes says, um, sometimes God puts his finger on us and he says, you're wrong in this area and I'm calling you to repent because this behavior will destroy your life. Sometimes the illuminating work of the spirit says, I'm putting my finger on this area of secrecy and darkness, not because I want to shame you, but because I want to heal you. And this illuminating work, this aha moment is like my invitation to you to come into healing. So preaching on sex is inherently evangelistic because it touches the human area of brokenness. Now we can preach Christ. The solution of the cross and the resurrection is the ultimate remedy to humans, ultimate brokenness. So we have to preach to it. And secondly, you know, like for me as a, as an evangelist and as someone who's at the local level freed up to go after, you know, souls, if you will, like, um, we have to learn how to build to, to, to the end that we desire. And so for me, that, that has meant limiting myself and to the things that I know I have grace to do. For me, I know how to pastor, there's grace for that. But in this new season, I can best fulfill my call in, in, in my service to the kingdom and even my service to the local church by being an equipping evangelist, someone who's, who's empowering everyday believers to do the works of Jesus to preach the gospel and the power of the Holy spirit, but then also someone who's building and strategizing in a way 
uh, where my life is devoted to that work. So just last night, we had a bunch of young people in our living room. These are all people that we're invested in. We're discipling. They come from high schools all across our county because we have a vision to see every campus in Williamson County open to the gospel. Last year, we saw 800 young people come to Christ over a three-month period. Pandemic starts. All of that was radically interrupted. We've relaunched ministry. New disciples, a new team this year. Um, and again, my living room is full of these young people. For, for, uh, for me, my involvement in, in reaching the next generation is at, at, at the point of my gifts. I'm discipling college students who are discipling high school students. I'm also discipling high school students. But we're walking together in, in, in defined strategy approach, hearing and obeying the voice of God to see campuses impacted all across um, our city. And, and, and honestly believe that some of elements of the breakthrough that breakthroughs we're experiencing here can, can, can serve other communities, especially across North America, that want to see um, camp, campuses one across. Yeah. Come on. Man, that's awesome. And now you've, you've recently put together a devotional workbook called New Identity, 30 Days of Prayer for Spiritual Transformation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, it was the first project the Lord gave me when we moved here in August of 2017. It actually came on the heels of a dream um, where the message of the dream was very simple. There's a harvest coming among the next generation. Number two, there's three parts to this. There's a harvest coming. Number, number two was it's super important to the Lord that in our work of harvesting, we don't neglect the dirty work of discipleship. And then number three, the third message was that the message of identity would be a key that would unlock the discipleship journey of the next generation. And so we wrote, I wrote a book, you know, a 30 day workbook devotional on the topic of identity. Every day unpacks a different identity point for the believer, beginning with I'm a new creation in Christ. And every day ends with the, the, the reader making an out loud declaration about who they are in Christ. You know, we spent a lifetime believing falsehoods about who we are. And so we're spending 30 days, even consecutively, if possible, declaring who we really are, according to God's word. And then the 30th day culminates as the reader uh, fills out a, a, a template that where they craft their own personal identity declaration based on their own transformational healing journey with Jesus. So it's really powerful. Uh, it, it's proven to be a powerful tool. We're using it in the harvest here in middle Tennessee. We've seen discipleship schools use it, you know, the young and the old, I, I, I've written it so that it can be accessible to the young person, but there's prophetic truths that can serve every generation. And, um, and so that's that new identity. So awesome. And we'll, we'll be sure to put a link to that in our, in our show notes, as well as a link to your uh, website, adamnarciso.com. Now, just what, do you have any last words you just kind of want to throw out to a Christian leader? Who's just like, man, we got to be better at this. We got to be better at discipleship. What would, what would you say? Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, start with just systemic, simple systemic changes can have lo massive long-term effect. And so um, inviting younger people than you into your life on a more day-to-day -day basis letting them see you behind the scenes out from behind the pulpit, you know, letting them access you um, in your home around table. I think one of the things God's doing, you know, is, is restoring the power of the table for the people of God, 
you know, um, as he's restoring familial culture to the church. And, and uh, yeah, if there's anything that has happened in our hearts in this pandemic season in the church, it's, it's been that longing for, for restored connection one with another. You know, um, several things has happened, but, but that's been one of them. And we've also realized just how, how the reality, the hard, hard truth of oftentimes our large Sunday morning gatherings aren't best suited for intimate connection one with another, true koinonia, fellowship. And so I think the Lord wants to restore the table, you know, the sacredness of gathering around a table as family, breaking bread together, enjoying one another, praying one, with one another. I know for different people in different provinces or countries or states who are in more or less severe lockdown mode, that might be difficult to hear and imagine, but I think that's where we're going. We have to recapture that sense of life-on-life Christian community. That, that doesn't mean we forsake the large assembly. I think it means it adds to and enhances the large assembly gathering because now we're truly one with one, with one another. Um, so I believe as we restore the table, restore more intimate connection, we're inviting opportunity for discipleship, life on life discipleship to occur. And um, so I, I encourage leaders in that regards, you know, just strongly. Oh man, I couldn't agree more. That's just so, so on point, dude. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking time to sit down with us here. We just so appreciate again, your heart and your perspective. And uh, like I said, we will have a link to all your, all your socials and all the, the, the link for your, uh, your workbook as well. And people can get a hold of that. So thanks so much for doing this, man. You bet, Brian. It's been a real joy and a treat, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope your life was impacted greatly. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at theunionmovement.com. For more information, visit our website, theunionmovement.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram with the handle at theunionmovement.